y'all. Happy birthday. It's, uh, our, our church is officially a toddler. It's two years old, which means that it is old enough to walk and also means it's old enough to throw temper tantrums and it's also old enough to get in a lot of trouble. So, welcome to two. I hope it's gonna be a great one. Uh, my name is Josh, I'm the pastor here. If this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, this is an exciting week if this is your first time to be here because uh, we're gonna talk about uh, specifically what this community does, what it is, and more importantly, where it's going. So you may have noticed that there's all of this artwork around us. Um, these are actually like things we did here on Sunday morning, we did, Bobby did. <laughs> Bobby's our artist in residence. Um, but each one tells a story of that particular moment that we were in or week that we were in. Uh, and this morning we're gonna be painting something brand new that's gonna point to where we're going. Uh, so more than just harp on what we've done, I want to take this time to look, to dream into the future, to say, what does this community look like five years down the line? What does it look like just in this next year? All of that kind of stuff. And to do that, we're going to use some pretty exciting, uh, I'm going to take some big swings in terms of metaphors, uh, to get this going. I'd just like to give a little roadmap. Let's see what's on my notes here. We're going to talk about uh, saints. We're going to talk about pirates. Um, we're going to talk about Star Wars. Um, and we're going to talk about a whole summer of my life that I could not sleep. So it's going to be a great time and on a super positive note. No, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked uh, just to talk about what's ahead and what God has in store. But to do that, um, we're going to have to kind of acknowledge his presence in the room. So let's, let's bow our heads and we'll pray uh, and then we'll get started. God, I'm, uh, I'm so humbled um, and just in awe of... Uh, what you have accomplished uh, through your church. Um, and we are just a, a branch and extension of that, Lord, but uh, I'm thankful uh, for spaces like this, meaningful spaces, uh, where all are welcome, where all can, uh, can struggle with faith, can wrestle with it, can enjoy it, uh, but we're all on this boat together. And so I, I just thank you that um, you've allowed us uh, to be what we are and to, and to thrive in that. Amen. Um, all right, so we're actually, as a church, we're in uh, kind of the middle of this series we're doing uh, called Heretics. Um, and basically, before you walk out of the room uh, and we're going to start being heretics, or before you walk out of the room and think I'm going to call out modern heresy, that's not what this is for. Basically, the whole series behind heretics is the Christian tradition has a very long and, and storied history of kind of getting it wrong. <laughs> we as a church, not as a faith tradition, but as a church, sometimes when fresh ideas come into the picture, we take that and we just can't, we don't know what to do with it. We don't, know, we don't understand something we don't understand. And so as a result, we kind of flee from it. We put up walls against it. Uh, and, and if you just take a look at the, the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic saints, if you just go down the line of almost every saint, here's the story. Uh, they start off in the church. They get kicked out of the church. Um, and then about 100 years later, the church reevaluates them and says, like, you know what? They were saints. <laughs> so it, it's kind of this big like, way around. Uh, but it brings up a very important question. Why, as a faith that believes in this thing called resurrection, that believes that Jesus is alive, that believes that God is still speaking, that is alive, why are we so much more comfortable with the dead things? Why is it that it takes a saint a hundred years before we catch up and go like, oh, you know what, that whole like round earth thing, there's something to that. <laughs> Maybe we should take a closer look. Why is it that as a tradition we're so comfortable with the stuff that's already happened rather than the stuff that's happening right in front of us. And so this whole series has been uh, a way to juxtapose the old school prophets in the Old Testament with sort of modern day prophets, people that may uh, have been sort of excommunicated in their time and later on we've looked back on them. The most shocking thing in all of this to me uh, was looking up the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. at the time of his ministry or at the time of his active uh, stuff, it was just over half 
of the Christians in the United States of America that were actually on board with what he was doing. Only just over half. That meant there was almost a whole other half out there that was like, that, that MLK guy has got it completely wrong, right? And now, we look back on that and we go like, how could that ever happen? That just doesn't happen. But then, that was the deal, right? We did not have eyes to see or ears to hear, as Jesus puts it. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is juxtapose the prophets who are also kind of these misunderstood characters uh, with the misunderstood characters of like modern day. Uh, and this week, we're going we're gonna to focus on, uh, on pirates. Uh, before we do that, let's talk about two characters. Well, last week, we talked about a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist uh, is in the beginning of almost every gospel. Uh, in the, those are the four books of the New Testament that Jesus talks in and that Jesus is alive in. Okay, So the four, it starts out with this guy named John the Baptist who we learn uh, is eating locusts and honey, it's a stable diet, and he's out in the wilderness. Now, the cool thing about John the Baptist is that John was from a priestly line. So his inheritance would have been given to him, and that would have been that you can become a priest because you're of this family line. And priests in this day, through the temple system, could make a ton of money. It was a position of privilege. But what John does is he sees the whole system, and he looks at it, and just looks at something that is inherently broken. And so what does he do? He does not try and go inside the temple and change it from there and make a scene and just say, let's tear it apart brick for brick because I hate this thing. He lets it do its thing, but he lovingly goes outside and goes into the wilderness and finds a river and starts baptizing people in that river as a symbol to say, like, no, God is not just available inside those four walls. God's actually as available as water, as available as flowing water. There's another guy uh, named St. Francis And St. Francis uh, was the son of a really wealthy merchant. He could have had it made. Uh, In fact, his studies were so great, and he was so good uh, training to be a priest that the the church was just ready to fling their arms wide open and say, like, please come in here. We want you to help lead us. And basically, when he got there and he saw the systems and all the organizations and and the the giant buildings and all that stuff, he looked around and he just goes, like, I can't rectify this with the Jesus that I know. The system no longer looks like the Jesus that I know and understand. So what does he do? He does not try and systematically destroy the system. He just lovingly walks outside and starts redefining what it means. He denies the priesthood and becomes a friar, which is just a way of saying a traveling preacher. He chooses to let it down. Most of the journeys of the saints are these people that we call heretics at first and then later on understand them. A big major characteristic is at a certain point, they realize that less is more. If they realize that the huge system that they have been trained in, that they've been brought up in, uh, it, it has its faults. And it doesn't need to be this grand, organized thing. In fact, to strip it down is actually the more holy thing to do. Less is more. We have a really, really hard time with this uh, less is more category. We love to add things. Right? If you buy a new car, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to get accessories for that new car. Right? We love to over-accessorize in almost every kind of a way. We just got a puppy this year, and I'm telling you, we have an entire like, wall dedicated to dog toys that he's touched one time, right? We love to accessorize. We love to add things, add things, add things, when oftentimes the best approach is to strip it away and actually see its core. What is this actually all about? Is it about all the stuff? Is it about all the religiosity? Is it about all the laws and the rules and all that kind of stuff? Or is it about this Jesus character, this man who came to save us? And what does it look like to strip it down to just the Jesus, right? And to look at that and say, what's at the core of our story? 
We have a very long tradition in the church of adding things. Even in the ancient uh, times, the Pharisees and the priests, um, they had this idea, uh, and rabbis later on had this idea, and they called it fencing in the Torah. So basically what this meant is like Sabbath, you're not allowed to work. And that was known. Like you, that's not a thing that you do on the Sabbath. We just rest. And we're, we're actually biblically mandated to just rest. Uh, but as a result, people would inevitably start working or something would happen. So what they did is they started fencing in the Torah. So what they said is like, even though it's the work thing that you're not really supposed to be doing, even to pick up a tool or a shovel or walk a certain distance or any of that stuff now violates that rule. And at first, that's a super healthy thing. Think of the idea of a fence, right? We would put a fence around something so that like our children, or in my case, my escapist dog, would not try and get out and get on the street, right? It creates a barrier, and that's a helpful thing. But once you start adding one fence, two fence, three fence, four fence, five fence, you get this system where it becomes impossible to get in. We're no longer trying to keep people from getting out. Like It becomes impossible to penetrate and for people to actually go inside. And we do this with our faith, too, and in our churches. Let me speak some real fiery truth. It's two years. I still got it, people. Basically, what we look for in churches is an amenity-based program. What we're looking for in church, if you're a believer, to accessorize your faith, go find a church. Make sure everyone in that church thinks exactly like you do. Oh, bonus points. It must have a great kids' ministry, live rock band, and even more bonus points. If it has a bookstore, you're in the right place, right? (laughs) It's amenities, but amenities can never actually increase our faith or move us forward or get us anywhere because amenities just prove boredom, right? We have something for a certain period of time and then it loses its luster. And all of a sudden we're back right where we were, but we need more and more to fill that space. Church becomes less of a thriving community of believers and more like a cruise ship, right? And this morning, What I want to say is we're building something and moving forward. I don't want a cruise ship. In fact, I will crash a cruise ship. (laughs) I don't have the ability to captain a cruise ship, right? I don't want a cruise ship. My my coach uh, and my mentor is this guy, um, Corey Marquez. He's at a church called New Abbey in Pasadena. Uh, He has this great saying that he says to his church every single week. And he says, hey, here, we're not a cruise ship. We're a rowboat. So that means that everybody takes up a paddle. We're all steering this thing. It's not just one person at the top saying, here's where we're going to go. It's all of us. And I love that idea, but I would like to take it one step further. Um, I don't want a cruise ship, and I don't want a rowboat. I would like a pirate ship. And let me tell you why. Now, pirates get a very, very bad rap. Uh, and this is, can we lower the lights a little bit? They either get a bad rap or they get a goofy rap like this. These are the pirates from Peter Pan. But the truth is, Pirates are actually some of the most brilliant innovators we've ever seen. Uh, They're known as sort of these murderous, like, crazy people, and some of that is true. I'm not negating all of that. But you have to look a little bit closer at the context clues to see why pirates come up at all. Pirates happen when a blocked system needs to be unblocked. When something is being kept in, and only a select few are getting at it, pirates show up and they unblock that system and they mess with the entire idea of empire, which is why when the Roman Empire dealt with them, and this is one of the first sort of recordings we have of these pirate folk, when they recorded them, they called them the enemies of all mankind. So not just the enemies of Rome. These guys are a threat to all of humanity because of the way they operate. The most recent and kind of characterized one we have, like Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean-esque flavor of pirate, is the 17th century, 18th century pirate. 
Uh, and we look at these people like they're just, they were always criminals and thieves and all that kind of stuff, and they just ganged up together uh, and somehow got a ship. How do you get a ship if you are a criminal? And then they would, uh, they would carry on their merry way just uh, pillaging and, and, and robbing people as they go. But that's not actually the true story. The true story is in the 17th uh, century and the 18th century, we had this uh, triangle of trade, this, this war between Spain, uh, Holland, and England. Uh, and the, the English were very, very proficient on the seas. And the reason they were so proficient on the seas was because that they were just shoving people into the Navy. Here's what would happen. If you were a young man uh, in, in the UK at that time, you step outside your front door, you could be something called press ganged, which basically means that these naval officers would come out of nowhere, grab you, take you to a recruitment office, and have you sign up for five to 10 years of indentured servitude. And I say indentured servitude because the actual conditions on these ships were worse than some of the, how the servants were being treated in other cultures. It was a diet of just hard tack and jerky, which led to huge outbreaks of scurvy. Uh, if you stepped out of line, you were punished so harshly and so severely that the, the actual look of a pirate with the, the eye patch and the peg leg and all that stuff, a lot of those injuries weren't incurred in robberies or in, in taking over other ships. A lot of them were incurred when those pirates started out as sailors in the Navy and punishment for things included eyeballs being cut out and arms being slashed. It was a terrible, terrible thing. They were paid very little and often not on time. And so here, you have this oppressed system, this blocked system. And you have a group of sailors, and they're on the sea, and they're all having to answer to one guy who's becoming very, very rich, by the way, of what they're doing. Because what the Navy was doing in this trade thing looked a lot like what? Piracy. <laughs> they were robbing things. They were pillaging. They were going to other nations and literally stealing their resources and bringing them back to make their nation richer. And in the process, the captains of these ships, these naval captains, were also becoming like fabulously wealthy. So you have a group of people who have been oppressed and beaten down injured, sick, and they look around. And you have to remember, in the 1700s, I just found this out this week, especially in New England, like on our side of the water, uh, the average life expectancy for a human being was still 25 years old. 25. So five to 10 years of your life, you're looking at an enormous chunk of your life just being signed away. And so as you feel like a prisoner, all of them began to talk and gain together and say, look, here's the deal. We know that the penalty for piracy is death, but in all honesty, we're dead anyway. So why don't we take this over and rework this system for good? The symbol of a pirate on these little flags is called the Jolly Roger. And basically, the Jolly Roger is waved not so that the enemy will look and say, hey, we're going to come on your boat and we're going to murder you. The Jolly Roger is meant to represent the pirate himself or herself. It was actually meant to say, like, no, we are the dead, and yet we still live. There is nothing you can do to us, because in the eyes of all culture, we're already dead. So you better fear us, because man, we've got nothing left holding us back. It was this radical idea of how to operate. There are five attributes, and I'm just going to keep talking about pirates all the time. There are five attributes uh, to pirates that I really, really loved, and that they were way ahead on. First uh, was fair pay. So, Back then, right, the naval officer, they were getting paid very little or not even on time. Pirates, the, the captain was paired, uh, paid four shares of every bounty, and then uh, every other crew member was paired a, a single share, which meant it was a ratio of four to one. Today, in most Fortune 500 companies, do you know what the ratio is from pay to the CEO to the lowest member? 384 to one. 
384 to 1. And some of the most progressive companies, that number shifts to close to 10 to 1. Pirates still have it beat at 4 to 1. The next thing was that they had a two-house system. So instead of one guy having all the power and telling you what to do, the captain still had ultimate power. But then there was this other guy named the quartermaster. And the quartermaster's job was literally to become friends with the crew, understand what the kind of like the, the mood in the room was, and then talk with the captain, and they would make decisions together. The other one was voting rights. There were women pirates, and there were men pirates, and each of them got to vote, even back then. And their vote meant a lot. It moved the actual needle in terms of what they wanted to accomplish and what they wanted to do. And then finally, uh, they created rum, um, which is something we can all be thankful for. So all of this happens. But you see, when a pirate shows up, it unblocks a system. Let's take this even further. In, in the UK again, UK is not getting a good rap this morning. In the UK, uh, there was the BBC in like the, the 1950s and 60s, and they controlled the entire radio empire. So they decided what got played, uh, and there was only about an hour's a week worth of pop music being played at that time. Only about an hour's a week. So a couple of enterprising young fellows decided, let's get a ship, like a bunch of pirates, sail out into international waters, and then we'll blast rock music down the airwaves just far enough that we can't get penalized for it, but just far enough that they can receive our stations. And what happened is pirate radio exploded. And all of a sudden, BBC is losing ratings like crazy, and we're losing these pirates, and there's nothing we can do because they're on international waters. And all of a sudden, the system is unblocked. And BBC says, okay, I guess there's a demand for this. They created four new stations that exclusively played four different types of popular music. Think about if you're, if you're close to my age, the first time you ever used Napster. Uh, you literally looked at it and you downloaded a song, it came into your thing as an MP3, you didn't pay for it, and you just went, oh, my life has changed. Right? You're like simultaneously like angry at the system and like, man, this will never be the same. And it wasn't. We don't have Tower Records anymore. We don't have even Barnes and Nobles and stuff are having trouble. Like, we don't have these places anymore because someone saw a blocked system and decided, whether it was right or wrong, to unblock it, and the whole thing is forever changed. Just think of my beloved movie pass, which is no more. <laughs> what they tried to do is unblock the system, and man, did they fail. Uh, but pirates unblock systems. And in this way, Jesus is the ultimate pirate. Because what he does is he sees a system that is exclusively who's in and who's out. And when he comes, he says, I want to unblock this idea of salvation to show that you don't have to get, just receive it from this one place, to show that salvation is available through me to everyone. I'm going to unblock the system. Jesus was so much a pirate, he used to tell stories of buried treasure. We have this story right here. Uh, this is a parable he used to tell. Uh, it says, the hidden treasure, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, this isn't just the, the buried treasure thing that's very pirate-like about this parable. Note the shrewdness in this. See, I think we oftentimes take away the intelligence of Jesus uh, and focus a lot on the emotional side of Jesus. But this is actually very, very shrewd. Basically, what he's saying is to understand the kingdom of God takes some hustle. It takes some, some brain power. It takes some creative juices flowing to really get what's going on here. Because what's going on here is if you find buried treasure in a field and you're a worker, right, what's the correct thing to do? It's to inform the owner of that land that you found the buried treasure and give it back to them. Note that Jesus does not say give the buried treasure back to the landowner. What it says is that the, 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 um, the worker literally goes out and shrewdly decides if I sell everything I can, 
I can probably convince this guy to let me have the land. And then in the ancient societies, as soon as you own the land, land ownership included everything that was within it. So he's not saying give it back. He's saying be smarter. <laughs> the kingdom of God has room for your creativity, for your, for your brilliance. You can let that shine. You don't have to check that at the door. It's actually real deal stuff. And the Roman Empire and the Pharisees are both catching on to the fact that this Jesus fellow who's walking through Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, all in these places and causing a ruckus, they're figuring out that he's teaching these people things that are dangerous to the empire. Because if people can realize their self-worth, if people can actually see that they're a beloved child of God, then we can't oppress them as much as we used to be able to do. And so what do they do? They figure out clever ways to try and trap him at every single path, giving him trial after trial to try and prove to everyone that this man is nothing more than a political rebel. He's nothing more than a pirate. Here's the number one uh, moment we have. This is the first time he really gets placed on trial. This is Jesus talking to uh, some Pharisees and some, some workers um, of Herod. So if we're going to talk about this, we must talk about taxes, question about taxes. So back in the day, uh, they, were, they were taxed three times, one from the Roman government, one from Herod, who was like the local governor there. And then if you were a pious religious person, you were also giving a portion of your income to the temple. That's three different taxes that you have to pay. And Rome was the toughest one. This guy, Caesar, was very, very good at empire, very, very good at war, very, very good at, at colonization. And the best way he did that, if you needed to get your message, and his key message were phrases like this, and this might sound familiar to you if you spent any time in church, one of uh, Caesar's propaganda messages was, there's no un other name under heaven that, that, which, or that who, who which one can be saved but Caesar. So we're used to hearing that with but the Jesus the Christ, but this time it's Caesar, and he would mint that on coins. And so if you picked up a coin, a Roman coin, you would see the face of Caesar, and then you would see that minted. Or it would say, son of the divine Augustus, basically meaning like Caesar is God, Caesar is Lord. So to catch Jesus, the Pharisees team up with the Herod people. So they're teaming up with the local government, and they're going, and they're going to go, here's how we can catch him. Because no revolutionary is going to say that they need to pay taxes to the government, especially if it has a face of Caesar on the coin. Let's read what happens. I uh, said, they sent some of the Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're genuine and you don't worry about what other people think. They're trying to like butter him up here. You don't show favoritism, but teach God's uh, way as it really is. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? Since Jesus recognized their deceit, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a coin. Show it to me. And they brought one. He said to them, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. And this is the most important part of this entire scripture. His reply left them overcome with wonder. So upon first reading, I'm not going, I'm overcome with wonder at what he did. What it sounds like, and what this has been hijacked for, is he's saying like separation of church and state, right? Like give, give to the church, give to the state, work in both of those. Now that might be true, but there's way, 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 way more going on here. Jesus is better than that, bigger than that, more beautiful than that. If we take this apart line by line, here's what's really important. If a coin has an image of Caesar on it, that violates the second commandment and the 10 of commandments. And there's only 10 of them. 
So pay attention here. This is one of the commandments. So that, that image says, no graven shall make no graven images of the second commandment. The other part of that is the inscription, which says, Caesar is Lord, or no other name that one can be saved. That violates the first commandment, which is, uh, you will have no other God before me. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, look at the very coin. And even better than that, they ask him, should we pay a tax? And Jesus, like a ninja, looks at them and says, I don't know. Oh, gosh, where's a coin? I don't have a coin. Do you guys have a coin? And then when they take out the coin, Jesus simply replies with a, yeah, like, <laughs> you are carrying the image of another God, and you are claiming that person as your Lord. What image is on that coin? It's Caesar's. It's made in his image. So just give that back to him. What image are you made in? You are made in the image of God. Therefore, you should be surrendering your whole self to this. Are we seeing how this Jesus fellow is a little more smarter than we've given him credit for in a long time? There are dozens and dozens of stories when unpacked that you just have to stand there and go, whoa, just as these people were doing, they were struck with wonder. They could not believe what Jesus had just done because answering, yes, you should pay taxes, he loses his whole following. And if he said, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, they can hike him right off to jail because this is a rebel. Instead, he creates a new environment, a new system, a new space, which is what a pirate always does. When they unblock something, there's room for something new. He creates this new space, and he says, now the conversation has shifted, and it's completely over here. And in fact, it's between you and God, and it's no longer any question of whether I should, should speak into the fact where you should pay taxes or not. He creates a new, meaningful space, one that can hold new ideas and do new things. He's, he's, he's showing them that you can be creative and you don't have to just play the hits. We don't have to just keep doing the same thing. You can be creative in this religion. You can be creative in this faith. And I am creative in the way that I am approaching things all the time. Uh, I used to play music for a living. And there was a, a time in my life uh, where I was going to go meet this producer um, who wanted to sign me to like a production deal, which is a short way of saying they didn't really want me on the label, but we'll give him a shot over here. Uh, so I went over, uh, and he said, hey, why don't you bring me songs um, that you want to sound like? So like, just bring me a collection of artists, we'll listen to them, and then, and then we'll do some writing. And so I brought the people, and I didn't realize this, uh, but the way that people wrote uh, pop music then, and, and probably still now, uh, this was in the Haiti of iTunes. So they would just open up iTunes, and they would go to the top 10 songs, they would listen to them, they'd pull common themes, or maybe a verse from here, bridge from here, hook from here, place it all together vertically, and then what they would do is deconstruct it, and then they would twist it ever so slightly so that it sounded just a little bit different, and boom, you have a hit on your hands because it sounds just like the top 10 that's going on right now. And so when I came in, I should have come in with a group of top 10 songs. I came in with like obscure Christian singer-songwriters <laughs> that he had never heard, right? And, and he was like, Josh, I want you to be way bigger than this. And it's taken me almost a decade to understand, but in that moment, I think what I really was feeling was like, oh, well, I don't really want to be bigger than this. <laughs> like, this is, this is the lane I want to be in. I don't want to copy and paste. I'd rather do something different. I'd rather be on a pirate ship than a cruise ship, right? It's this idea of copy and paste. And unfortunately, we do this with our faith, too. We get handed down a, a group of traditions and these religious laws, and we copy them, we paste them into our lives. And, and it just becomes this sort of watered-down, whittled version of Christianity. 
There's no life to it anymore because we're not inserting creative, fresh ideas. We're just kind of pulling from what's popular right now and putting it into our faith. But my question is, does the story get any better, right? Church is shrinking at an incredible rate in our country. The reason it's doing that is because we're refusing to see if the story gets any better. It's like watching a, a, a movie and then slowly realizing that this is not a good movie, right? Have you ever like, turned something on? Netflix is amazing for this because you can turn it right back off and find something else. But you start out the movie and you're like, OK, cool, good cast. Things are going well. I'm liking this. 10 minutes goes by. Something's feeling a little off. Like, I, I don't know. What's going on here? And then about 20 minutes in, someone says some really cheesy line of dialogue, or it's a really weird plot twist, or something like that. And your, your theory has been confirmed. You've wasted 20 minutes of your life. It was indeed a bad movie, right? I always do this very low. I give a lot of credit to me. I've never walked out on a movie in my entire life. I usually like to give it its good go. Like, there's got to be something redeemable, something good here. I'm the guy that loved those next three Star Wars movies, like in the mid-2000s. I loved them. And, and in that time, it's because I was completely sold out to the story. Check this out. This is two Halloweens in a row I did this. This is my sister, uh, who's here this morning. This is my brother, and that is me. I was Jar Jar Binks for two whole years. I really, really committed. But give it some distance, right? Give it a couple years. And I look back, by the way, Jar Jar Binks never had a lightsaber. That was a very, mom, what are you doing? Um, give it a couple years, though, and you, you rewatch that movie, and I'm looking back, and I'm going, this is garbage town. Like, it's no good. But at the time, my favorite thing in the whole world was Star Wars. I was sold out to the gospel of Star Wars. I loved it so much that anything that claimed to be Star Wars, I was on board. I was like, yeah, this is for me. I love this stuff. But what happened was years down the line, I began to realize, like, wait, no, hold on a second. I think that my Star Wars, this beloved thing, this, this, the gospel of Star Wars, somehow got taken advantage of. It got, it got used for different purposes than what I was used to it. And I was really, really blind to that because it's Star Wars. It's official. Like, George Lucas is doing it. And I have a very complicated relationship with George Lucas. I grew up in Marin County, which is where Star Wars was born. Uh, and George Lucas was like my white whale. Like he was the, I wanted to see him so bad. I was searching out actively, like, I can't wait for the moment. And everyone had a story of like, oh, I saw George Lucas at like this store. It's a small town. So like, he's really the only celebrity that lived there. Uh, and I was in a movie theater one day. And uh, I'm, I'm, I turn around. And it's only like me, my friend, a couple other people. And my friend just like hits me. And I turn around. And there he is. He's sitting two rows behind us, beard just aglow with the flickering cinematic beauty. And I go, oh my gosh, it's George Lucas. What am I going to do? I've got like an hour left of this movie. I'm paying attention to nothing else. <laughs> George Lucas is behind me. What are we going to do? We get up out of the theater. We're walking towards the door. And my friend is like, you have to say something. You have to say, just say hi. This is before we had iPhones, so I didn't even have a device to take a picture with. I just would have been like, can I have your arm or something? I'm not going to be able to form full sentences. So we're walking to the end of the theater. We get outside. And then there is his like Mercedes G-Wagon parked next to my mother's minivan. And they're right there. And they're like the only two cars in the lot. And we walk up. And I'm still like, no. I'm not gonna make a, I'm not gonna make a fool out of myself. I, I'm not gonna say anything. And then I, I open the door to my van. Uh, he opens the door to his very expensive car. Just as he's about to get in, this wave of courage comes over me and says, this is your shot, Josh. Swing big, take it. I pop my head above the minivan and I say, Mr. Lucas? 
as any responsible, polite young man would do. Mr. Lucas, he looks up, and I am immediately washed with white, and I say, good Star Wars. And then he gets in his car and he drives away. <laughs> and to this day, I have never let down the feeling of saying good Star Wars to George <laughs> Lucas. But I loved it. And at a certain point, the story got taken in a weird direction that it never should have gone. And I truly believe that's what's happening in modern day Christianity. Somewhere along the line, this thing got hijacked in a way that it shouldn't have. And it hurts people. And it causes them to turn away. And it's not fair to do that. It's not fair to use the gospel, to use Jesus for our own gain, to build large structures that are going to burn people out. That's not okay. And the reason I love this space so much is we have such a legacy of always trying to include people, of always saying, like, this table is open for you if you want to step into it. It's always open. The table, the story gets better. What we're trying to do here, just like pirates, is create a new space, a meaningful space. And what I mean by a meaningful space is a, a place that you are meaningful in because your community means it a place that you are meaningful in because your community means it. You matter here. When you aren't here, your presence is missed. You are important in this space. Your relationships mean something. Your marriage means something. Your career means something. Your heart means something. Because we are sold out to this Jesus guy, and we really, really, really believe this stuff. And so you mean something in this space. Two years ago, as we were getting started in this iteration uh, of Resonate, we had about 10 people showing up from week to week, uh, like six of which were my family members, uh, four of which were on the board, so they had to be here, right? So we had this small group, and, and every week after week, it was just this feeling of like, oh, man, this is never going to work. And then at the same time, you know, like there's financial responsibilities, there's all this kind of stuff. And so I spent an entire summer just thinking, like, I'm just basically driving this thing into the ground. Like, how could this ever work? And I would lose sleep over it, and I would constantly be stressed out, and I'd be going, I, what is it going to look like? The first thing I ever do is going to fall apart right before me. And I cared so deeply about this, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then one day, I just woke up, and I remember this so specifically. It was, it was dark, because my uh, fear and anxiety had gone ahead and beat the alarm clock. So I'm up, and I'm doing my classic, like, what the heck am I going to do with my life? And I looked, and it, just as the sun was coming up, uh, like a ray of light came through the blinds um, as I was laying in bed. And I had this huge come-to-Jesus moment epiphany thing of like, whoa. And I realized, like, I don't need to take this so personally because God cares about this way more than I do. To God, resonate means something means something because we can participate in what he's doing. And any community that is really, really sold out on that vision, that's going to be an amazing thing. So why am I worried about what God is already worried about? We can do incredible, incredible things if we just get out of the way. And that was the clearest time I've ever heard God's voice, and all it said was, get out of the way. <laughs> right? 
get out of the way and let me do something. Get out of the way and let me do something. So I think as we are moving forward, as we are into this next year, as we're looking and painting a vision for what we're going to be doing, I think the message is we need to get out of the way and let God do something. Because what we're building here is a ship that can quickly pivot. The reason the pirate ship is such a wonderful metaphor for me is because it could move on a dime. And we've done that. When the flood happened in Houston, we literally said, okay, 100% of what we take in this week, scheduled giving and giving that happens here, 100% we're going to send and completely give it over to the Houston Food Bank to do stuff that they're doing in there. When the Thomas fire happened, we weren't able to do 100% again because I played that card. Um, so we, could, we did 10% of what we took in. We were able to give to the Thomas fire. We're able, this is so fun, we had a Harvest Home gala last night. We're able to answer the weird calls from Harvest Home that no other church can really do. They're like, can you, can you be here uh, 10 p.m. tonight to move these logs from one side of the yard to the other? We can go, yes, we can, because we are a pirate ship, and we can pivot, and we can do that kind of stuff. It's exciting having that much maneuverability. It's exciting that we can move so quickly. And so as we come down for communion this morning, which we're going to take, um, what we're going to do is we're going to create, uh, Bobby's going to coach us in this so that you're all safe, you're not going to ruin the painting. Um, we're going to paint a single brush stroke as a wave to say this is the momentum that's going to be moving the ship forward. And we're all involved in painting what's to come. We're all an equal share here, and we're all involved in guiding this thing to new places. So you can come, and you can take a brush stroke, and you can brush it there. Um, but first, this is probably the most, it is the most meaningful thing uh, we do every Sunday morning, uh, and it's communion. So this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood poured out, a sign of a new covenant. And you can come, and you can take a piece of the bread, and you can dip it in the cup, and you can experience what God is doing for you. I say this every week, but this is a space for everyone. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable doing this, don't do it. That's fine. Um, if you would like to experience this for the first time, anyone is welcome to come and do this. Um, and then this is the largest piece of technology we have here at Resonate. So if you would like to give, if you would like to put your community card, if it's your first time, uh, put your email on that community card. We love to just reach out uh, and send you a welcome email. We send like three emails a year, so do not worry. <laughs> um, you can drop that in here and prayer requests, all that good stuff can go in these boxes. Um, it's going to be a little tough to navigate because we've got a full room and we've got two separate communion tables but just one painting. So um, I would say funnel to the closest communion table and then just kind of approach the table. And then what we can do, if you guys could come out and around this way, that'll help with traffic flow. Uh, but let's all stand together uh, and let me pray as we end the, the sermon. Lord, I am uh, I'm blown away by where we've come, how far we've come, and what you're doing. And I just pray that, um, uh, that we would just continue to, to just ring that same bell, that we are a church, uh, that everyone is welcome. Uh, we love you. Amen.